Our next victim comes from the Peach State, Georgia. Sarah is this month's newest victim. She has been selected to live in the Velisca murder house for a month. If she makes it through, she will win $100,000. Does she have what it takes to survive? I walk onto the stage as I'm being introduced. A small crowd of friends and family clap as we record the special before going to Villisca, Iowa. I've been entering my name into newest victim for years. The show picks a haunted place, picks an unlikely contestant, and it's live streamed 24-7 the 30 days the victim is stuck in the house, hotel, etc. The victim has a stipend for groceries, can leave the house for a max of two hours per day, no visitors, and no mind-altering substances. I've been an avid viewer since the show's premiere a couple years ago. Most people get so freaked out. They don't win the money. Others that have won the money are mostly okay, but if you get messed up from the experience, there will always be unbelievers in these shows. The camera crew or special effects doing things to spook the contestants and make the place creepier. But that's showbiz. I like to think these places are really haunted, and maybe the cameras and microphones just can't pick up everything that we can. I am not stoked that my house is the Villisca murder house, a bunch of people murdered for seemingly no reason. Plus, it was so random and brutal for this small, close-knit town. I wonder how they feel about this being broadcasted. We leave straight from the studio to Villisca. I had to pack beforehand to make sure to pack the essentials. Snacks, chargers, face masks, and small crafts. Might as well get some things done while living out of this house for a month. I was going to take a semester off school this spring anyways, really figure out what I'm wanting to do with my life, and if I win $100,000 in the meantime, who would I be to complain? The camera crew is already at the house before I pull up. They have secured the area surrounding the house. A large crowd gathered outside the perimeter. There are signs all around stating this area is under 24-7 surveillance, and if you are here, you're automatically consenting to be recorded and could appear in the show. Most of the time, only people who want to make a point to have the camera on them try to get into the shot. This time... It's different, though. There's not the air of excitement the show normally pulls. The people in this crowd are upset. They hold up signs saying, we're not welcome here. It's not too late to stop this and to leave their town. So much hurt and pain that's being exploited. But I have to tell myself, someone somewhere approved this house and show to come to their town. It's just for one month. I am escorted into the house. It's small and stuffy. You can tell the owners tried extremely hard to keep it in its original state. It is two-storied and we are given the tour. I'm shown the kitchen and sitting room and then we venture to the blue bedroom. We go upstairs to find a smaller bedroom and then a larger bedroom, all furnished with how they would have looked in the early 1900s. Finally, we see the crawl space. It's pretty drafty and cold up here. I always read it was hot, so it caught me off guard. We head back down the stairs to the sitting room. 
I'm shown where the food I requested is, a map of the area, emergency phone numbers, and an overview of the rules. One last time. Everyone leaves, all in a rush to get out and leave me to begin the countdown. As the door shuts behind the last person, a silence washes over the house. I become acutely aware of all the small details I'd not noticed yet. I wander around on the main level, going from the kitchen to the living room. I look at the pictures on the walls and the trinkets on the surfaces of furniture, slowly making my way around until I finally reach the piano. It's open, so I play a few keys, allowing the instrument to break the silence of the house. It's unnerving once the noise fades away and the silence returns. With my back to the rest of the room, a shiver runs down my spine and I feel the need to check over my shoulder. Make sure I'm actually alone. I slowly spin on my heel, nervous that someone or something is going to be behind me. But nothing's there. I am alone. A small sense of relief washes over me. Then I remember, I'm not really alone. There's cameras all over the house. Someone has been watching me. That's why I'm here after all. I am allowed to, somewhat required to, sleep on the beds in the house. I decide I'm going to check them out and see which is the most comfortable. Might as well settle in for the afternoon. I check out the blue room on the main level. There isn't much to it. A twin-sized bed, dresser, sewing table, and chest. I sit on the bed and listen to the springs creak under my weight. As I sit on the bed trying to feel if this is where I should sleep, I realize I'm holding my breath. I give a deep exhale and decide this probably isn't the room for me. I head up the stairs and enter the smaller room. Settling on the bed, I shut my eyes and begin to feel relaxed, like I could sink into it. And then I hear a small bump. I open my eyes and sit up. The door is closed, but not latched. I'm trying to remember if the door to the other room was shut when I walked up the stairs. Maybe they just shut on their own? I push it out of my mind. I get up and head into the larger room. This room has two beds, but I opt for the larger one. Sitting down, it is so stiff. No way. I go to the other bed, and this one is very stiff as well. Small room it is. I go downstairs to get my suitcase and bags, lugging it all upstairs. I place my clothes in the dresser, slide the suitcase under my bed, and bring my toiletries to the bathroom. The house has gotten dark as the day is beginning to come to its end. The curtains block out most of the light, the small amount coming through creating long shadows along the floors and walls, eerily distorting natural shadows. It takes me a minute, but I remember there were lanterns in the house. I have to use my match, but I light three, one for the kitchen, one for the living room, and one for the blue bedroom. It won't stay in the blue bedroom, but while I'm down here, it eases my mind to know that I can see into the dark room. I turn on some soft music on my phone and go to explore what I can make for dinner. I didn't give a very extensive shopping list and I don't seem to have some of the spices or tools to make the meals I was planning on. I'll have to go out tomorrow and buy some of these items. I want it to feel homey after all. 
I decide on noodles and spaghetti sauce. Simple enough, and it always hits the spot. While the water is boiling, I go into the living room and peruse the books on the shelf. I brought my own books. However, it could be cool to check out a new type of book. After all, I only have time. A lot of the books are books about the Velisca Axe murder. Nice. What fun to read while you're staying in the creepy house. My fingers trace along each of the spines, looking for something familiar. I instead find something incredibly old. I almost continue. However, it's one of the oldest books on the shelves. I pull it, and familiar words cover the front. Black Beauty. I loved this story as a child. I settle onto the sofa and carefully open the front cover. In looping cursive, may you always find strength and kindness in all that you do. Not signed. I stare at the words and wonder who and who to this inscription was written. As I'm lost in thought, I hear a loud crash come from the kitchen. I run and see red everywhere, all over the floor, and splattered up the walls. On the floor, the focal point the splatter is projecting from, a broken sauce jar. I shut my eyes and roll my neck. I wish I could have a glass of wine. It takes a while to clean the sauce. The noodles are completely overcooked, and I'm having to eat them with butter since the broken jar was the only jar of sauce I had. I'm settled on the couch, eating my pasta, and getting into my book. Maybe an hour passes, and I notice the house is extremely quiet. I look up for my book, trying to figure out what's changed. When I realize the music stopped, I basically forgot it was playing. I go into the kitchen to grab my phone, I can tell it's dead when I pick it up. The screen stays dark as I tap it. I'm not even sure what time it is. I don't see any clocks in the kitchen. I look around, decide I'll clean it up in the morning. Reading has exhausted me and I'm ready to get into bed. I see the blue bedroom has gone dark, but I want to make sure the lantern is out. I walk into the bedroom, tiptoeing as I cross through the doorway, like I don't want to spook the lantern. It's still warm as I grasp it. I turn around before I can truly register it. A person standing in the doorway, face twisted into unrecognizable swirls of black and facial features. I squeeze my eyes shut and hold the lantern to my body. It's not real, I slowly say to myself. I open my eyes looking down and slowly pull my gaze up to the doorway. I see the low light from the lantern in the kitchen. I look around the room and I'm alone. I exit the room, shutting the door behind me. I take one of the still burning lanterns up to the bedroom at the top of the stairs. I go back downstairs to grab my phone, the book, and the other lantern. I carry them all up with me. As I set everything down and sit on the bed, I begin to feel unnerved. I tell myself it's nothing and I need to stop thinking about what I saw downstairs. I extinguish another lamp and just have one burning. I find my phone charger and plug it in. After a minute, the screen comes alive. 12.07 a.m. No wonder I'm seeing things. I never stay up until midnight. I snuggle into the comfortable bed and allow myself to be drifted by the words on the pages into Black Beauty's world. 
my eyes growing heavier and heavier until I'm dreaming of running through fields, not a care in the world. I awaken. The room is dark, but some light is coming through the windows. I lay on my side, now very irritated at myself for choosing this room. The top of the stairs comes to basically the foot of the bed, and the door to the crawl space is just on the other side of the room. I'm trying to fall back asleep without thinking about the violence that once occurred in this room. When I hear shuffling, it isn't very loud, like someone is tiptoeing. I can't exactly make out where it's coming from, but it's coming from up here. I'm frozen in place, unblinking as I try to make sense of the noise. The sound of shuffling stops, and the house is still. It takes a moment to begin to relax, but as I do, a grinding sound emerges, a latch coming undone, and a door slowly creaking open. I cower under my covers, squeezing my eyes shut as the sound of heavy footsteps slowly make their way towards me. A scraping sound accompanying each footstep, metal dragging along the floor. The footsteps come up to the bed, my eyes still squeezed shut, and there's nothing. They just stop. I don't hear anything and feel no movement. I peek one eye open, but it's obscured by the blanket. I open the other, looking up towards the ceiling. When I see the same person as before, my gaze fixed on their twisted face when they bring the blunt end of an object down on my head, immediately knocking me unconscious. I wake in a hospital bed, the rhythmic beeping blaring and obnoxious. There's someone in the room with me. As I turn to see who they are, she turns and greets me. Hey there, you awake again? Again? I always say groggily. You've been in and out. This is the first time you've spoken. Try to be easy, baby. I close my eyes and try to straighten my neck. Electric pain shooting through my forehead. I make a gasping noise when the woman comes over and tries to tell me to be still. If I give her a moment, she can get me some pain medication. She asks if I remember falling. I'm confused and she can tell. I look up at her and she pulls a mirror from the bedside. She holds it over my face and I see a large gash splitting my forehead in two. Purple stitches pulling the skin back together. Crusted blood from where it's been oozing from the wound. As I look at the wound, I tell her I didn't fall. She makes a disbelieving noise, looks at her notes, and says I was brought in by Kevin Arthur and that they thought I fell. Kevin Arthur. The name is familiar, but I have to search for it in my mind. The camera guy in the show. The woman continues in my silence. They checked the cameras and saw you were on the floor in the kitchen, like you had fallen down the stairs in the middle of the night. He's going to review the footage and let us know what happened. He should be back soon. I don't know how I ended up all the way down the stairs, but I know that the killer tried to get me too. But luckily, someone was watching me and looking out. While I may have been the newest victim, 
At least I won't be the latest one. Hey guys, it's Holly and Brittany, two sisters who take a deep dive into the history of the world's most haunted places and paranormal happenings. This is Sisterstitious, and it's about to get spooky. A white farmhouse that sits at 508 East 2nd Street in Villisca, Iowa, was built in 1868. Many have strolled through this home to witness for themselves the site that housed a gruesome murder in the summer of 1912. Many have claimed that after the murders, the victims never left their residence and still occupy the home today. But these victims aren't the only ones dwelling inside. A dark entity has also been discovered and believed to be walking the halls with this prey. Are these experiences purely residual, or is something more sinister taking place here? We would also like to add that some of the content stated in this episode may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Now, since every good ghost story starts at the beginning, that is where we're going to begin. The city of Aliska was a planned town created by the Chicago Burlington and Quincy Railroad in 1858. The city's name was created after the Villisca, which they believed meant pretty place, but in reality, the word actually means evil spirit. During this period in history, the railroad was everything to the community, and the community was everything to the railroad. Towns were able to be built up and sustained because of them. About two dozen passenger and freight trains stopped in Villisca each day, which brought growth to the community. By 1912, Villisca was a thriving city with a population of about 2,500 and held several hotels, restaurants, stores, and theaters. While the city's economy was based largely on agriculture, it was still known to be an advanced and cultured town, immersed with music and art, Family was at the center of this tight-knit community, and neighbors looked out for each other. Many residents of Villisca enjoyed the tranquility and peacefulness of Midwestern life, until an unimaginable tragedy struck their town on June 10, 1912. Mary Peckman, a resident of Villisca, woke up on Monday, June 10th, and noticed that her neighbors, the Moors, were unusually quiet. It was very normal for residents of Villisca to begin their day extremely early, and the moors were no exception to that. With farm animals to feed and kids usually running around, this family's quietness was very odd. Joe Moore, the male head of the house, would have been off to work by now, and Sarah Moore, his wife, would normally be tending to her four kids, Herman 11, Catherine 10, Arthur Boyd 7, and Paul 5. After Mary's concern grew too great, she decided to walk over to the Moore's residence to see if everything was all right. As she reached the house, she approached the windows to look inside, but all of the shades were pulled down and every piece of glass on the door was covered. There was virtually no way for anyone to see anything. Mary decided to call up Ross Moore, who was the brother of Joe Moore. Ross decided to call Joe's hardware store to see if he had gone into work, but Ross was told that Joe had not arrived yet. 
Now, with more reason to worry, Ross arrived at his brother's home and tried to finagle a way to get inside, but no door or window would budge. Finally deciding to try a key on his keyring, he was granted access into the house. As the door creaked open, all Ross and Mary could see was complete darkness. They slowly made their way into the house, and Mary stopped herself in the parlor, knowing that what they were going to find probably wasn't going to be good. Even in the darkness, Ross noticed that the back bedroom door was open and made his way in that direction. When he entered the room, all he could make out was two bodies laying on the bed with blood covering the sheets and walls. This was enough for him, and both Mary and Ross fled out of the house. Ross then phoned Hank Horton, who was the town marshal. When Hank Horton arrived at the house, Ross said to him, I think something terrible happened inside. Hank went inside the house and during his testimony recalled the house being dark as night and that the darkness seemed purposeful with even the glass on the doors being covered. Hank approached the same back bedroom Ross saw and found two figures completely covered by bedcloths and had been hit fatally in the head. With a closer look, he assumed that the two bodies were that of a girl and a young woman. As he scanned the room, he spotted a bloody axe laying against the wall and a four-pound slab of uncut bacon wrapped in cloth. He also saw a kerosene lamp on the floor of the bed with its chimney spotted under the dresser and a black skirt covering the dresser mirror. Hank then approached the creaky, windy staircase, slowly making his way up and the stairs croaked with each step he took. When he reached the top of the staircase, he saw another lamp with a missing chimney. He picked it up and moved to the side as he walked into another room. He spotted another set of bodies lying on the bed, covered with sheets and fatal wounds to the head. Even with faces unrecognizable, Hank knew who these two bodies belonged to, Joe and Sarah Moore. He also noticed marks on the ceiling above their bed, which he figured was made by an axe. Hank then made his way deeper into the home and entered into the south bedroom, where he found all four of the Moore children laying in their beds, struck fatally as well. He suddenly realized that he had all of the Moore children accounted for and didn't know who the two extra bodies in the downstairs bedroom could have belonged to. When Hank came out of the house, he said, My God, Ross. There's someone murdered in every bed. Hank knew he needed to go into town to find a doctor and left the night marshal, Mike Overman, in charge of the crime scene. When Hank went into town, he stopped by City Hall and asked the clerk to notify the authorities. Once this happened, the news of the crime began to spread rapidly in the town, and by the time Hank returned with Clark Cooper, the doctor, there were already crowds of people in the street in front of the Moore house. Clark Cooper, several more doctors, and Reverend Ewing toured the house and examined the victims. Found in the downstairs bedroom with the two mystery girls was two Bibles with the names Lena and Ina Stillinger written inside. It was then he realized that the two bodies belonged to Ina Stillinger, age 8, and Lena Stillinger, age 11, friends of Catherine Moore. When Dr. Cooper came out of the house, he saw several young men were trying to peer inside. He said to them, Boys, don't go in there. You'll regret it till the last day of your life. A man by the name of Bruce Dillians went in anyway, hoping to score some pictures of the gruesome scene. As he was leaving the house, Ross Moore saw him with his camera, ripped it out of his hands, threw it on the floor, 
and stomped on it until it was utterly destroyed. He wasn't going to let anyone profit off the death of his family. By 9.30, two more doctors, Dr. Williams and Dr. Lomas, arrived at the house, and by this time, the scene was a complete madhouse. They determined that none of the female victims had been raped, and based on rigor mortis, determined that their time of death was around midnight. But something was different about one of the victims than the rest. While the rest of the victims were found laying on their backs, Lena Stillinger was in a different position. Lena looked as if she had slid in order to try to move away from the killer, or was moved after she was killed. She was one-third of the way down the bed with one foot off the bed and her arm under the pillow. She was laying on her side in position so that her genitals were exposed. There was also a spot of blood on the inside of her left thigh, which emphasized that the killer positioned her this way after death. Her underwear were found under the bed with blood, used to wipe off blood from the axe. After close inspection of all the bodies, it appeared that Joe Moore had been bludgeoned the hardest. Dr. Williams felt that most of the victims were hit with the pole of the axe first, then hit with the blade. But Miss Moore and Ina Stillinger were hit with the axe blade up front. It was also determined that Mr. and Miss Moore were killed first, then their four children, and the last two Stillinger girls. It is claimed that residents of the town were making their way through the house to see the crime scene with their own eyes. Without enforcements to keep people from the town out, evidence was ultimately moved, altered, and destroyed. Needing some sort of order, barbed wire was placed around the house and the National Guard was ordered. Overall, it is estimated that hundreds of people stepped foot inside the Moore House on June 10th. However, Bill James, from his book, Man on the Train, claims that this amount of people didn't actually go through the house until the 11th and 12th when the bodies were already removed, and that only people who were helping in the case entered the home on the 10th. The axe that was used to commit the murders was identified to belong to Joe Moore because of the chip and dullness of the blade. Joe used it primarily to break up coal. By this point, Miss Stillinger, Lena, and Ina's mother had wondered why her daughters had not come home yet. When she decided to try calling the Moors to check on her daughters, the operator responded that a call could not be placed to the Moore house because everyone there had been murdered. Now, we're going to stop the story here and go back to Sunday, June 9th, the day before the murder was discovered to better understand the victims and what happened. Lena and Ina Stillinger were getting ready to head into town as they lived a couple of miles outside of Aliska. It was a big day for the city since Children's Day service was to be held that evening at the Presbyterian Church. Children's Day evening service was an annual program that took place on the last day of the Sunday school year where the children performed skits, songs, and Bible readings. Naturally, all the kids in the town were excited for this event. As the two girls left, they stopped for a moment to smile and wave goodbye to their father a last gesture that would be cherished in his memory until his dying breath. When the two girls got into town, they went over to the Moore's house to walk to church with their friend, Catherine Moore. In the afternoon, there was a rehearsal for the program which Sarah Moore led. After the rehearsal, they all went back to the Moore's for dinner, and that is when Lena and Ina asked if they could stay the night instead of walk back to their grandmother's after because they were afraid to walk that far in the dark. Joe Moore called up the Stillinger household to ask for permission. 
Blanche Dillinger, their older sister, answered and gave the permission for the girls to stay, a decision that would haunt her for the rest of her life. After a successful Children's Day service, the Moore and Stillinger girls headed back home and finished off the night with milk and cookies. They wanted to sleep, satisfied and unsuspecting of what horrors were to come. On the night of June 9th, the town was unusually dark. All of the streetlights were cut off due to a dispute between the Villisca Town Council and the Villisca Public Service Company. After the town was quiet and all were home in their beds, Marshal Hank Horton was on night watch with Marshal Mike Overman, and Hank noticed someone he did not recognize walking in the middle of town. He called out to the man and didn't get a response. The stranger just kept walking. Horton said to Overman, Why don't you throw a light on that man? And Overman said, I don't think it's necessary. Only if they knew what was to come. Joe Moore, also known as Josiah and J.B. Moore, was a prominent business owner in Villisca. He was extremely well-liked and wasn't known to have any enemies. Joe and Sarah were married in 1899, and Sarah was known to be very active in her community and a typical matriarch of the time, raising her four children. The Moore family had a reputation of being generous and kind. So who on earth could have possibly murdered such a well-loved family with so much hate and violence? Let's go back to June 10th so we can discuss our first suspect. Another prominent figure in Villisca was a man named F.F. Jones. On the day that the murder was discovered, he suggested that bloodhounds be brought in from Nebraska to see if they could sniff out the killer. When the bloodhounds arrived, there was about 1,500 people outside of the Moore residence. The bloodhounds were given the axe and a piece of clothing to sniff, and they led the group down the street. One of the bloodhounds did stop at the outside of F.F. Jones' house to use the bathroom, but since most of the crowd couldn't actually see the bloodhounds, it was figured they stopped for a lead. It was then that speculation started growing about F.F. Jones possibly being involved. The bloodhounds trailed on, though, and led the group out of town all the way to the Nottoway River, where they found bloody clothes, a handkerchief, and footprints. Unfortunately, the bodies were not to be moved until the coroners could arrive, and they sat in the house until about midnight. The bodies were taken to the city hall and firehouse, where the embalmers began to work. Joe's mother desperately wanted to see Joe one last time before he was buried, but was advised not to, and to remember him as he was. To appease her, she was allowed to hold his hand for some time while his body was covered with a blanket. Meanwhile, People in the city were frantic. People bought locks, bolts, and guns from stores in town, trying to prepare themselves in case there was another attack. Multiple families started residing in one house so that it would be easier to keep a lookout for possible intruders. With the town being small and gossip frequent, many theories were being passed around that had no validity whatsoever. One theory, for example, was that the photograph of the killer could be captured like a photographic plate on the eye of the victim. It was said Miss Moore had her eye open when she was struck, and it was believed that her eye was sent to the State University in Iowa to be analyzed and get a print made of the killer. Some people even stretched the rumor so far to say that her whole head was sent there. But this wasn't true, of course, because after the murder, she had no eyes left to send. Ross Moore attempted to get more answers from a fortune teller who used her coffee grounds to determine the killer was a local man with a beard, but this suggestion was dismissed. 
In order to get some more evidence from the crime, an expert in fingerprinting was called in. Fingerprinting was a very new form of crime detection and it wasn't widely used yet. When the expert arrived into town the next day, he was completely wasted and was deemed useless until he sobered up. Once he had his head on his shoulders, he went into the house and measured the length and angles of the marks on the ceiling and determined the belief that the killer was left-handed or at least struck his victims using his left hand. On Wednesday, over 7,500 mourners and visitors came to the park for the Moore's funeral. Caskets were lined up in the firehouse and businesses were closed. After the service, the bodies were moved from the firehouse to be taken to the cemetery. Since there weren't enough hearse to move them to the cemetery, their caskets were moved by open wagon and the crowd followed. After the first week without any solid leads, sheriffs from Monteith, Illinois and Ellsworth, Kansas met in Villisca to compare similar murders to see if they believed the same person committed the crimes in each of their towns. During 1911 and 1912, there was quite a large number of axe murders happening all over the Midwest. And even though so many elements in each of the crimes were very similar, they couldn't come up with a conclusion and drop the idea of a serial killer. By 1914, there were still no leads, and the case was getting pulled then. Members of the Moore family had come up with their own theory of the case and began raising money to keep attention on the crime. Their unrelenting search would lead them to accuse F.F. Jones, a state senator and prominent business owner in Villisca. F.F. Jones owned a hardware store and farm implement business, being a direct competitor of Joe Moore. Joe Moore worked for F.F. Jones for nine years, but had disagreed over wages and Moore left but took the John Deere Plow franchise with him. There was bad blood between Jones and Moore. It got so bad, in fact, that they refused to speak and would even move across the street to avoid each other if their paths crossed in town. With the money raised from Ross Moore and his family, the state of Iowa was able to hire a private detective named James Wilkerson. He had a good reputation. After Wilkerson started investigating, he charged F.F. Jones and his son Albert Jones with conspiracy to get William Mansfield to do away with Moore. Business was not the only trouble between Joe Moore and F.F. Jones. Albert Jones, F.F. Jones' son, was married to a woman named Dona. She was known around town to be a very beautiful woman and enjoyed the company of men who were not her husband. She had many suitors one of which being Joe Moore. Since Dona was frequently receiving calls from men, many of the telephone girls would enjoy tapping into the phone lines to listen to their conversations and gossip about it with their friends. So news of Dona and Joe did spread. Wilkerson believed jealousy to be a motive of the murder and spread the story that Mansfield was hired by Jones to work in a Villisca paving crew in 1911 and came back a year later to commit the crime. In June 1916, Mansfield was arrested in Kansas City while he was working at a meat packing house. He was brought to the Kansas River where authorities held him by his ankles above the river and urged him to confess, but he continued to deny being involved. He was held at the Montgomery County Jail pending an investigation with a grand jury. Ultimately, there was no evidence that he did commit the crimes and Mansfield was let go. Upset by this decision, Wilkerson began holding public meetings all around town. He was an engaging and persuasive speaker, so many people in and around the town came to his meetings, growing his following. 
Wilkerson even went as far as to post flyers at a Mansfield mugshot which stated, The hypocrite whose dirty money paid for the hellish job wants your support for state senate. Will he get it? Enough was enough for Jones, and he decided then to sue Wilkerson. During the trial, the courtroom was packed with Wilkerson supporters, and Wilkerson had hired Ed Mitchell as his defense. This was an unfortunate turn of events for Jones, because while the trial initially started to fight Wilkerson's slander of Jones, it quickly changed to Jones' involvement in the murder. Wilkerson had gathered witnesses to testify against Jones, with many claiming they overheard discussions that involved getting rid of Wilkerson and Moore, and even some claiming they saw Jones and Mansfield outside of the Moore residence before the murders. Eventually, it was proven that there was no way Mansfield could have been in Villisca during the night of the murders because there was proof he was working 400 miles away from the murder scene with signed payroll forms that included the days and hours worked. It also came to light that Wilkerson's witnesses weren't telling the truth, and they were persuaded to tell the stories they told. Jones was acquitted, but unfortunately, his reputation in the community would never be the same, as many still believed he was involved with the murder. As interest in F.F. Jones moved away, the next suspect that came to light was a man named Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. He was an immigrant from England and preached in small towns throughout the Midwest. The Presbyterian Seminary in Omaha assigned him to preach at two country churches every other Sunday outside of Villisca. Kelly arrived in Villisca Saturday night before the murders. He was picked up from the depot and taken to a family home in Villisca. With kids in the home, he seemed bothered and asked their mother to take them out because they were in his way. He was given the downstairs bedroom to sleep, and all night the mother stayed outside of his room to keep watch on him. She didn't like him and didn't trust him, noting that he was crazy. The next day, he was taken to the Arlington Church outside of town where he preached at 3 in the afternoon. After that, he attended the Children's Day service that evening at the Presbyterian Church in Villisca. It was here that he would have been able to see the Moore children and the Stillinger girls. After the service, he went to stay with the Reverend Ewing and his family. The next morning, he caught the train extremely early to head home to Macedonia. Kelly ended up placing the spotlight on himself when he started becoming completely obsessed with the murders. He wrote dozens of letters to Ross Moore, the county attorney, the state attorney general, and the sheriff. Each of his letters included great details about the murder. Since questions were raised about how he could have possibly known all the details he did, a discreet investigation was done of him, but it was decided against a grand jury since authorities just believed he was suffering from a mental illness and everything he was writing was just coming from his imagination. But, of course Kelly couldn't possibly stay out of the spotlight, and in 1914, attention was brought back to him when he placed an ad seeking a stenographer. He received interest from a young high school girl and responded by letter saying, You look like you'd be just fine, but you have to type in the nude. Distraught by this letter, she gave the letter to her pastor, who then turned it over to the authorities. They began to send Kelly bogus letters, pretending to be the young female, and his replies became more suggestive, which was enough for them to charge Kelly with sending obscene material through the mail. Federal marshal came to arrest him, and he was sent to St. Elizabeth's Mental Institution in D.C., where he spent nine months under close observation. In 1917, the jury turned to an incident that happened about a week before the murders. Kelly was seen by a neighbor watching a woman getting dressed for bed through a window. Along with being a known peeping Tom, Kelly also had sent a bloody shirt to an Omaha laundry shortly after the murders. 
If this wasn't enough evidence to arrest Kelly, an elderly couple also claimed that they were on the same train as Kelly when he left Villisca the morning of the murders, and said that he had approached them, started speaking frantically about the details of the murders. And if this were true, this would have been before anyone knew about the murders, which of course raised some concerns. Reverend Kelly was charged with the murder of Lena Stellinger because she was moved and displayed sexually, and he was known to have perverted sexual desires for younger females. Kelly turned himself in in May 1917 and was sent to Logan, Iowa, where he spent four months awaiting trial. The county attorney tried everything to get the little man to confess. Since they believed the killer was left-handed, they asked Kelly if he wanted some exercise. He agreed and they gave him an axe to chop wood. He swung the axe left-handed. In a final effort to get a confession, they had Kelly meet with the state officials where they spent hours threatening him if he didn't confess. He was then transferred to a cell with two other men. He believed the two other men were thieves, but they were undercover, one being a newspaper editor and the other being a sheriff. They tried to tell Kelly that authorities would go easier on him if he would just confess. All night he was drilled and then taken back to his cell in a continuous pattern until finally around 5 a.m. he gave them a confession. Kelly said that on the night of June 9th, he was supposed to stay at Reverend Eugene's house, but he had a bad asthmatic condition, so the family slept outside in a tent. While trying to sleep, he kept hearing the sound like a windmill in his head and had trouble sleeping. Starting to feel ill, he decided to go for a walk. He was working on a sermon at the time called Slay Utterly. He walked to the Presbyterian church and he heard a voice that said, go on, and stated that he was in the grip of something he didn't understand. He felt that God wanted him to slay utterly. He kept walking until he saw a long shadow reaching all the way to the Moor's house. He then heard a voice that said, Suffer the little children to come on to me. And he raised his arms up and said, Yea, Lord, thy servant herewith. And then he said he went to the barn and picked up an axe and walked right into the Moor house. In a trance, it was like he was walking up Jacob's ladder when he made his way up the staircase. He killed Joe and Sarah, and the Lord's voice came a second time and said, More work to be done. So he continued into the four children's room and killed them all. When he got done, he went to the front room, and as he was standing there, the Lord's voice came a third time and said, Still more to be done. So he went to the back room and killed the other two children. He said he followed the shadow, and it led him to utter destruction. By this time, many believed that Kelly was a deviant of sexual behavior, and with the confessions on the train in the bloody shirt, it sounded like this really was the Velisca Axe murderer. However, many people still believed Frank Jones to be the one at fault, and Kelly's confession was just fabricated by Jones. Kelly's trial began on September 4, 1917. While Kelly was characterized as degenerate, pervert, and maniac, Kelly buried his head in his hands, slouched all the way down his chair where his head met the armrest, and cried. Unconvinced of his confession, many believe that he was so emotionally unbalanced that they believed Kelly was scared out of his mind by the authorities and he would have confessed to anything. 
It was also argued that with the blood on his shirt, it was most likely bloody from shaving, since men frequently cut themselves with razors in this time. And when the couple, who claimed they met Kelly the morning after the murders on the train, had to swear under oath, they couldn't be sure if they really did speak to him the morning of June 10th, or if it had been two weeks later when he came back to Villisca to preach. The jury came back hung, and it was decided to retry Kelly a month later. Ultimately, it was hard to convince the jury that he was the one who committed the murders. While yes, Kelly was believed to be nuts, he did not seem like the type who could go through the physical efforts of hacking all those people to death. Residents in Villisca were very divided when it came to who they believed was the murderer. Individuals were either convinced Kelly did it, or they were convinced Jones did it. This divide would go so far as to cause disruptions to everyday life for the residents. If you were for Jones, you couldn't associate with anyone who was for Kelly. If a business owner was for Jones, then customers who were for Kelly couldn't shop in their stores. Even children weren't allowed to play with children from other families if their suspects differed. Unfortunately for these people, the culprit was most likely neither of these men, and the murder was the work of a serial killer. In December 1912, a story had broken about another Midwestern axe murder. The headline read, Two aged women slain in home here with an axe. Victims are mother, 82 years old, and daughter, 61 years of age. Bodies are found by relative. And who was this relative? A man named Henry Lee Moore, not related to the Moores from Villisca. On December 18, 1912, Henry Lee Moore was in Columbia, Missouri and made his way from the Central Hotel to his mother's house. He decided to stop by his neighbors first to let them know he was back in town, and he was going to arrange something to do for Christmas with his mother and grandmother. As he approached his mother's house, he noticed that the kitchen door was unlocked and let himself in, seeing something shocking. He ran out of the house to another neighbor's home and said, come see what happened. Lee and his neighbor went back to the house, and as they entered the kitchen, they saw Lee's mother, Georgia Moore, dead on the floor in a pool of blood. Then they found Lee's grandmother, Mary Wilson, in her bed, covered in blood, her head beaten with an axe. Later, a bloody axe was found behind the house. Lee was interviewed by a newspaper where he stated that he had just arrived from Oberly that morning. Investigators were suspicious and easily discovered that he did not arrive in Columbia that morning, that he had arrived the afternoon before and had stayed in the central hotel where bloody clothes were found in his room. He was arrested and charged for the double murder. On March 10th, he was convicted and was sentenced to imprisonment for life. In 1956, his sentence was shortened and was released when he was 82. Ultimately, Lee had been looked into as the Velisca Axe murderer, but with the axe being used as a murder weapon, there weren't many other similarities between the two crimes. Also, proof of his whereabouts demonstrated that he had an alibi. It wouldn't be until about 100 years later that another man would be head of the suspect list. This man is Paul Miller, or can be pronounced Mueller. I am going to read a few excerpts from Notes from the Frontier, The Accidental Tourist, Part 1, to describe why it is believed by many that Miller was the Velisca Axe murderer. Paul Miller was a German immigrant who spoke very poor English. He was described as an itinerant lumberjack, very powerful, fearless in his physical projection, but socially awkward, sullen, and strange, and intimidating to others. He was the hired farmhand of Francis Newton, 40, his wife Sarah, 41, and their adopted daughter Elsie, 11, on a farm near West Brookfield, Massachusetts. 
When the parents and daughter were found hacked to death by the blunt end of an axe, all clues pointed to their hired farmhand, who had disappeared suddenly. Bloodhounds had tracked his scent to a nearby railroad, where he had escaped. A massive manhunt ensued, but Miller was long gone. The case was never solved. Two more multiple axe murders would take place in New England in the next two and a half years, with many of the signature characteristics of the first murder attributed to him. His character as a serial axe murderer was born. He traveled the rails, hopping freight trains, expanding his killing spree to the south, then the Midwest, then Texas, then finally the West Coast and back again. As an itinerant lumberjack, he often followed lumbering camps. He seemed scientific about his patterns, and he was particular about how he used the tool of his trade. The sharp end of the axe was for wood, the flat end was for people. If he stayed too long in one region of the country, investigators began to connect the dots, so he varied his travel plans wildly. But even then, one Chicago investigator was beginning to uncover similarities between his crimes across the country. With Villisca, Iowa, then Payson, Illinois, the investigator was getting closer. Then, suddenly, Miller's trail went stone cold. Modern researchers would link Paul Miller to more than 100 murders across the entire country in a 15-year period. Bill James was also fascinated with the unsolved Villisca Axe murders of 1912 and applied statistical analysis to the crimes, but he uncovered far more than he bargained for. He began to recognize the patterns and link to many other Axe murders. He then enlisted his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, to help him with his research. The result of their research was a popular book called The Man on the Train. A number of signature characteristics tied many of the murders, perhaps more than a hundred, to one serial killer. They were 1. Murders took place very near a railroad junction. 2. The slaughter of entire families in small towns with little or no police force. 3. A barn on the property provided a hiding place to observe the families. 4. The families had no dog to warn of an intruder. 5. The killer used the blunt edge of an axe as a murder weapon. 6. The killer left the axe in plain sight. 7. The killer covered mirrors and victims' faces with sheets or blankets. 8. The killer moved or stacked bodies after the murders. 9. Killer covered windows from inside the house with sheets or towels. 10. The absence of robbery. 11. Often, but not always, a kerosene lamp was used with the chimney removed. 12. Many crimes were committed near lumber camps. 13. The father and mother were usually killed first. 14. Faces of victims were struck numerous times but the rest of the bodies were not damaged. 15. The cases where the homes were burned after the murders, there had usually been a struggle with victims, usually the man of the house. 16. Killer had a sadistic sexual attraction to prepubescent girls. While adults were typically ambushed and murdered in bed while sleeping, girls showed defense wounds or other evidence of struggle, and media reports of the crimes often included veiled references to the killers having ejaculated at the crime scenes or sexually violating female corpses after death. They attributed about 108 murders to Miller. While we unfortunately will never truly know what monster committed the Velisca Axe murders, it sounds to us that the culprit was most likely the man on the train. Here are the reasons why we believe this. 1. The Morris house was near a railroad. 2. The entire Moore family was killed. 3. The Moores had a barn. 4. The Moores had no dog. 5. Most of the family was killed first with the blunt side of the axe. 6. The killer left the axe in plain sight in the downstairs bedroom. 
7. The mirrors were covered in the home and all of the victims were covered with bedsheets. 8. Lena Stillinger was moved after she was killed. 9. All of the windows were covered in the Moore house. 10. Nothing was taken from the home. 11. Two kerosene lamps were found in the home with the chimneys removed. 12. We can assume their home was near or en route to a lumber camp. 13. Joe and Sarah Moore were killed first. 14. All of the victims' faces were struck multiple times, their bodies untouched. 15. Their home wasn't burned, so this doesn't apply. 16. Lena Stillinger was a prepubescent girl and the bacon wrapped in cloth was possibly used as a masturbatory tool. Over the years, the Moore house was inhabited by a few families, and while many did not claim experiencing anything paranormal, one family in particular did. The young girls who lived in the home would hear laughter in their room that sounded like it was coming from young girls. One particular incident that happened was extremely alarming. Their father was in the kitchen and realized that he had stabbed himself. With no recollection of the incident as it was happening, he said it was like something overcame him that forced him to do it. Unknown to any of them at the time, a similar event would happen years later. With the Morehouse needing massive restorative work, a man named Darwin and his wife Martha Lynn bought the house in 1994 and restored it to its original condition. The house was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1997. Much to the dismay of residents in the town, they began opening the house up for tours during the day and offering overnight tours as well for those interested in the paranormal. It wasn't until the renovations that many of the hauntings started coming alive. It is said that all the energy being emitted during renovations can spark paranormal activity. Many visitors of the home have heard laughter from children, feelings of cold hands trying to grab their legs, heavy footsteps, deep growling, doors slamming on their own, sudden feelings of sadness, and even some people have been physically injured as well. There have also been many EVPs collected by paranormal investigators. In Richard Estep's book, A Nightmare in Villisca, he put the hauntings in four different categories. Based on evidence collected by him and other paranormal investigators, he believes the house is either one, haunted by the victims of the murder, two, haunted by the killer, three, haunted by something demonic or unhuman, and four, the house is haunted by itself, by way of thought form. Since many people have claimed to hear kids giggling and feelings of cold hands touching them, it is believed that the spirits of the children murdered are interacting with visitors. People sleeping in the house or next door to the house have claimed to see a very angry woman with distorted face fussing at them and even trying to scare them away. Psychics and sensitives have also seen Sarah Moore in the home. She is known to be very angry and does not enjoy all the visitors coming in and out of her house. The house can also be haunted by the killer. Heavy footsteps have been heard walking all around the house. The footsteps have been heard making their way up the stairs and even stopped for short intervals in the locations that the murderer would have stopped to bludgeon his victims. Johnny Hauser, who lives next door to the Moore house, works for the Lynn family to keep eyes on the home, fix things that are broken, and host tours through the home. He has had his fair share of experiences, but one night when he was fixing something in the downstairs bedroom, he heard footsteps approaching the closed door. They were so loud he was certain he heard them. Since there was no electrical lighting in the house, he was surrounded by darkness, with only minimal light coming from his flashlight. 
When the footsteps reached the door to the room he was in, they stopped, and he could make out a faint light coming from underneath the door. Assuming this was actually a person in the home, Johnny grabbed his gun from his pocket and yelled out to the intruder that he was armed and to get out. After searching the home, he realized no one was in the house, and all the doors and windows were still secure. If this really is the killer haunting the Moore house, then it is most likely just a residual haunting from the night of the murders. The third haunting described by Eastep is that the house is possessed by something evil or demonic. People who have visited have claimed that they believe something evil attached itself to them and followed the visitor's home, which caused horrible and even tragic events to take place. These events included family members acquiring terminal illnesses and have even been involved in deadly accidents. Many guests have heard low growling coming from somewhere in the house, and a black mass has been spotted pulsing through the walls. It's not just seeing and hearing these things that would make someone feel that this spirit is evil. Another report of a self-stabbing happened again in 2014. A man and his two parents had rented the house for a night to do paranormal investigation. The man decided that he wanted to provoke the house to try to see if he could be a witness to some paranormal activity. He went into the bedroom to do a solo investigation when his parents found him with a knife shoved through his chest. He was airlifted to a hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, and he did survive, but he didn't have any memory of what happened to him. Whatever caused him to do this, or did this to him, was most certainly evil. The last haunting described is that the house could be haunting itself by thought form. A thought form haunting our entity is artificial and created through human thoughts and emotions, specifically intense emotional energy. These entities can form into apparitions and even something undefinable that causes pain, suffering, and negative energy. They can also exhibit a personality and show self-awareness. With so many people coming to visit the house and knowing the tragedy that took place, it is natural that their emotions and energy would be intense, which would easily feed the creation of a thought form entity. I guess the only way for you to know what exactly haunts the walls of this small town house is to pay a visit to it yourself. If you are interested in stopping by the Velisca Axe Murder House, daytime tours are held Tuesday through Sunday, 1 to 4 p.m. And if you want to have a more paranormal experience, overnight tours are available for $428 for groups up to six people. But take caution when you enter. Many tours have been cut short with visitors wanting to leave early from sightings that sent them running out the door. Hey guys. Hey everyone. (laughs) It's time to go deeper and maybe get creepier. So we've reached episode 10. Woo! Woo! Um, This was where, like, this is our goal to reach 10 episodes when we started. So it's amazing because now we're here and while... It seems like it took a while to get here. It also doesn't. I think that always kind of feels that way when you start something. The process seems longer than when you finally get to the end result, even though we're nowhere near done with the podcast itself. But this has just been a really neat experience. Yeah, it has definitely um, been eye-opening. I've never been much of a historian myself, but learning all the different histories of all the places that we've explored, per se, has been really eye-opening. It's been really enjoyable, and we've gotten to flex our creative minds that I don't think either of us knew we were really going to get to do. So it's just been a very enjoyable experience, and I look forward to everything else that uh, we get to do. 
Yeah, we just went into this and self-taught ourselves everything. I mean, we are literally doing everything. We're recording, we're editing, we're writing, we're, you know, going through the editor and putting, stringing together our entire episode. So it's just been like a huge learning process, but it's truly been a lot of fun. And honestly, we have been way more successful with this podcast than I ever imagined us to be. I mean, I was expecting maybe 15 listeners an episode and we are at 3000 downloads. So we have almost doubled our downloads in a week, which is amazing. And it's all thanks to you guys. If you guys recommended us to anybody or just shared our podcast, thank you. Like, that's amazing. Um, It's always fun to get more listeners and even the listeners who've reached out. So let us know how much you love our podcast. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. And, I mean, we're doing this because we're enjoying it. But it's also super fun when we know that people listening are truly enjoying what we're doing. And hopefully, if you are from an area where we've done an episode, you've learned something new and you've also gotten to go explore somewhere maybe you never really thought about exploring. Um, Something exciting in June, uh, my husband Paul and I are going to be in Colorado and we're going to go visit the Stanley. Fingers crossed our story doesn't end like theirs in that episode, but um, it'll still be cool. Maybe we'll take a picture for you guys. Yeah, I know. I have a lot on my bucket list now of where I want to travel and see. It just, like, opens the door to so many more states that, I mean, I obviously would love to travel everywhere in the U.S., but it just, like, opens the door to more states that I didn't even think about. Um, So, yeah, it's just just been an incredible thing, and we can't wait. If you haven't Listen to our previous episodes. This is going to be our last episode for about four weeks, and we're going to come back May 18th with more episodes for you guys just because we want to revamp things, possibly get a website running, and get a Patreon up and running, and deciding what we're going to do with our Patreon because we really don't know. But anyways, yes, just thank you guys so much. You're incredible. And we love you, and we can't wait to be back. But before we get into talking about the episode, I just kind of want to talk to Brittany about, through this process, like, what was your favorite place we've done and why? Um, I think that the Limp family was super cool, but, you know... I still, even though I just said it, I still want to say the Stanley is my favorite. I think that, I think that there's just like something about the history of the Stanley and then other things that have shaped our view of horror. And we talked about it in the Stanley episode of all the, um, there's a lot of Easter eggs in things that refer back to the Stanley So that's really cool. And if you're, you know, if you're a horror fan, you recognize those things. And I would definitely say Holly and I are horror fans. And then just the whole, it was really fun to work on the story for the Stanley, knowing that we're going to go visit the Stanley. Just the name, the Stanley. Holly has a dog named Stanley. So I just love it. (laughs) Um, Just, I don't know. But the Limp is, the Limp Brewery is a really close second because that is also such a neat history rich story yes yes what is your favorite 
I would say the lump is still my favorite. Um, yeah. Which is very interesting because the lump is the lump episode is the least listened to episode. So I would say besides Lake Lanier, because I think that a lot of our listeners like have never heard of Lake Lanier. So while mm-hmm. Lake Lanier might be more popular with some of our Atlanta listeners, it might, you know, it might not resonate with a lot of people from different states. But yeah, I mean, if you have not listened to The Haunting of Blunt Mansion, you guys need to be listening to that because yes, it's still by far my favorite episode and just kind of the episode that I had the most fun with. Mm-hmm. Um, even though this episode was really intense. So the Velisca Axe Murder House. Ooh. So this was the first episode that we did that really tied in true crime with it. So it kind of made it a lot more intense. Um, and then doing all of the research that we had to do on it, it was just like a week worth of kind of reading about people's heads getting smashed in with an axe, which just like is not, I mean, the story is really cool. Uh, not cool. I don't want to use that word. Um, the story is very intriguing in a way that, you know, we still don't know who really did this awful, horrible thing. But just having to kind of read up on this so much over the past week has just been really, really intense. And honestly, I found myself really nauseous a lot just because, you know, picturing these horrible things. And um, I also read The Man on the Train, which goes with the who we think that the axe murderer was and I mean that is just like the like a whole bunch of axe murders and then the grisly details of those that this man Paul Mueller did so it's just like so intense this has just been a really intense episode it's been very interesting but once again just so much information and history so I would say that I think, as, like, I know Asylum 49 is our most popular episode, but I feel like after, once we release this, that this is going to be the most popular episode. Really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> just by what people are, like, people like to listen to, what I can tell, it's, like, the more intense. <laughs> it's very gruesome. It does, it does capture that morbid curiosity. Yeah, so if you are somebody who's really into true crime, I'm sure you'd love this episode, even though we're not going to be hitting a lot of true crime episodes, because that's not this podcast that belongs to many other wonderful podcasters. This just was very interesting to get into and cover. Yeah, and it's it's actually really surprising that we don't hit more episodes that encompass true crime, because to me... Just what I know about paranormal happenings, it's usually pretty aggressive, assaultive behaviors that results in someone's death to where there is a spirit. But through all this, I guess we've really noticed that it doesn't necessarily have to be like you don't have to die there. It could just be large amounts of energy that call those spirits back to it. Right. Yes. Um And so we know that based on the hauntings, we know that there's like four different hauntings that that is like what is believed to be in the house. And it's the haunting of the victims or the next one's the haunting of the killer, 
The next one is the haunting that would be like something demonic. And then the last one is the haunting of the house itself. So like a thought form. And I did bring up a thought form um, in the Stanley Hotel episode with the girl in the basement. Gosh, I can't remember her name because we've done it. It wasn't so the basement. Episodes. It was the uh, theater room. Yeah, the theater room. Yeah. Lucy? Yes, Lucy. There we go. So Lucy was also a thought form. Um, the, and I used an agrigore, which like maybe wasn't the best term to use because agrigore kind of means more evil spirit. So I would just maybe go with more of a thought form, which is energy is there's so much energy being put out there that it essentially creates a haunting that like nothing is really creating it besides our thoughts. While I personally believe that to be the more likely option in this case, because you know, there are tours, there are tons of people coming, going to the Velisca house to take tours of and see, you know, where these gruesome murders take place, took place. I just think that it's definitely a recipe for all of this energy to be put in there. And then therefore there's going to be a haunting. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I would hope that the victims aren't still trapped there just because that would be really terrible. Something that I would like to believe is that even if there are technically not residual hauntings, but intelligent hauntings, that like, hopefully there's, even if it's an intelligence haunting, like hopefully the souls of the people like still aren't there. It's just like we talked about in Melbourne Manor, just mm-hmm. like maybe part of their spirit or like something is just like been trapped like you know in in this like veil right right this side of the veil like something's trapped and it's just kind of there existing and still has those qualities to kind of like interact with people but I'm really hopeful that the souls of these victims are not still there if that's what it is well do you know what southwest Iowa is just overflowing with underground I'm going to assume limestone. Yeah. I uh, cross-referenced a map from an article that we had talked about. Um, I think it was, I think we talked about it in, no, the limp would have been too soon. It might have been the Stanley. But the map, it's a map and it shows uh, all the deposits of limestone and quartz in the United States. And while going through this, I was like, I wonder, because it just doesn't seem like that's where it would be. Nope. It's in, like, northeast Iowa and southwest Iowa, and it's Mm -hmm. just, like, right where Velisca is. It's crazy. So is, I mean, I really haven't looked at, like, limestone maps. Is there, like, I just feel like, I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, I bet there's just, like, tons of limestone just, like, all over the United States. Is that not true? Um, it is all over the United States, but there's definitely states that it's not in. Let me pull it up on my phone because I was just looking at it. So basically right down the center of the United States, it there's none. Hmm. It's like um, North Dakota, South Dakota. There's nothing in there. And then just like just east, it's full of limestone um, it's in, there's like a huge band that goes from the top of the Northeast down through like the middle of Alabama mm-hmm. and then, uh, Louisiana, it stops. 
So, and then all down the West Coast, there are some. So it's not, it's not everywhere. Hmm. But it's, there is a very, very heavy deposit in Iowa. And it's just, it's just crazy because it's just something that we've been, you know, looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, another thing that I was going to bring up, and I, and I know that I, and I feel like it would be more likely that this would be a more, like, thought form haunting, but, I don't know, I might retract my statement there, because I was thinking about it, and, um, something that we mentioned in the episode was that this, like, there's, like, a there is known to be a very dark entity within the house. So that's why it's either the murderer or it's a demonic spirit or something super evil that's not human, right? Um, I do not think it's the kids. Like, I don't think it's the victims. I don't think it's any of the moors. I don't think it's any of them. Um, I think that, that the interaction between the kids that people have had is definitely some other entity with people having, like, that have gone there, that have had really, really bad things happen to them when they leave, like, something has attached themselves, mm-hmm. um, maybe it makes me think, yeah, it's probably not a thought form. While all of that could definitely be, like, something that just happened to them, it's a coincidence, you know, these things were going to happen to them anyway, it could have nothing to do with the house. I don't know, it's just happened to a good amount of people, and even um, the guy that runs the Velisca house who lives next door I mean he had tons of stuff follow him next door it just is weird so based on that Brainy, and I know that I am always very down usually to go to these haunted locations to see based on that I'm just wondering if you would be interested in going to the Velisca murder house no <laughs> I don't know I feel like I say no every time but this just has a different element to it where It's not like you leave and, you know, all you have left to do is ponder the story. It's you leave and there's the chance that the story follows you home. Mm -hmm. And that there's just something about that where I guess it could happen anywhere at any time. But I wouldn't want to risk that. And it's because if it is something if it's not just a spirit that causes you, you know, heartache in your life and it is something more sinister such as a demon and, you know, there's a possibility that you pick up on it, you acknowledge it, it could control your actions or possess you. I just, that, it's damning. It's like, it's nothing that I think I would ever want to take the chance on. Yeah. No, I think I'm with you. I mean, I would love, obviously, like, love to go see the house just because I've spent so much time researching mm-hmm. this, like, case and this this murder. So, and, like, the pictures of Aliska look beautiful. Um, I would definitely be interested in going. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm with you, and I think this would definitely be the one place that I wouldn't go because if we know what I say every time, like the last thing I want is something attaching itself to me. And it seems like that it could definitely be a possibility in this house. And then that's something that we were talking about earlier. It usually would attach itself to people who went through and like stayed the night. But 
there's nothing stopping it from attaching to someone. If it's just even one thing, it could be multiple things, who knows, from just a passerby. If it can follow someone from the house by attaching, who knows, like, what people bring out of there every single day, even if it's just bad energy. Yeah. That they're just taking from one spot and depositing into another. Yeah. People could be bringing it from, people could be bringing things, too. If it is, like, this, like, once again, like, another place, like an energy hub or something, just maybe a place that evil spirits like to be just because like there are people that like differ obviously in their experiences when they go like some people have felt like the house has had a very positive ambiance to it but a lot of people don't and I don't know if it's just because we know what happened there and you know what you're walking into well I also think that it could have to do with you yourself as a goer and your general outlook and attitude where you know someone happy and solid and not as vulnerable goes in that might not be the correct host or something whereas someone who may be sad you know maybe they suffer from depression or other mental illnesses or they're just something bad happened to them and their trauma you know can manifest and is almost like fuel to these spirits to feed off of they see that as an adequate host and follow them back into their lives So, I don't know. It's when you, to me, when you start like thinking about these things and you become more cognizant of it, it like opens the floodgates and invites that energy in. So, I'm like, well, probably wouldn't want to even put myself close to where something could be like, ah, that one smells good and like hop on my back. And I thought if we go back to Malvern Manor and what we talked about before, so we did bring up the Velisca murders in Malvern Manor, um, but now that we've actually covered both the Velisca, and just because being that it just seems like Paul Mueller, the man on the train, would be the most likely person to have committed this crime. He's close to the train tracks, he covered up, you know, the windows, he went in, he locked the doors when he left, he murdered. I guess, like, the, the male figure of the home was beaten up the most out of everybody else. Like, you know, just there's just so much consistencies to so many other murders that happened. It could have definitely been possible that he stayed at the cottage inn in Malvern Manor for sure because Mm -hmm. it, you know, just would have been a train right away, got off the train track, stayed there. There is no, you know, guest book from the Cottage Inn anymore, so there's just, like, no way that we could retrace that. So it is just, like, so creepy, so creepy and interesting how these two places could be linked like that and how there have been paranormal activity that have kind of, like, been seen in both places that are connected. Yeah, like, I know that... Richard Estep was in Malvern Manor and then he was talking to the man who owned who not owned but was like kind of was like the watchman for the Velisca house and he was talking to him when he was in the Velisca house at the time Johnny Hauser and they asked Johnny Hauser to kind of like stir up the energy while they're on the phone to see if something can happen and Johnny Hauser's like yelling kind of get trying to like get these spirits to engage and then they heard like knocking above like Richard who was in the Malvern Manor like heard knocking above him in the Malvern Manor so like 
Didn't hear knocking at the Velisca house. It was in the Malvern Manor. So it just is, like, yeah. unbelievable. And, like, I think that that was, like, such a cool realization. Whoever thought that up. Some sort of connection, like, through time and space of these two houses. And then, I mean, I've always liked true crime. I've been a true crime person my whole life. Oh, but for sure. It would be very hard, I think, to say that I would want to go. But, I mean, that, it's just, you know, it was obviously, like, such a gruesome scene. And unless you're going to, like, seriously pay respect to these, like, really, like, these poor victims, I don't know. I just can't imagine. And I've just been thinking about it for so long and having kids myself. The whole thing is just completely tragic. So, it's your dog. Yeah. It's Baron Jax barking at... A squirrel outside or something. It's okay. I'm sure we have tons of animal lovers as listeners. Yeah. I have two dogs, everyone. <laughs> yeah. This this whole episode, I mean, what a way to end this season. What a way to end our last episode for a little bit. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it. I know that we'll probably hit more true crime slash hauntings but i know that most probably won't be that if there are any true crime hauntings that you guys think we should do a special on in our patreon you should let us know because we are also looking for recommendations on whatever type of extra content you guys could be interested in that we can provide for you yeah, I think that's the number one thing we're kind of struggling with right now. Is yeah. What extra content could we provide, you know? Um, so that's something we'll definitely be talking about together um, during this month off. And we'll definitely miss posting episodes for you guys. But once again, this has been so much fun. We're so thankful for you. And... I know this is getting to be a much longer episode than I'm sure everybody anticipated. So I really don't think I have much to add, except this was just like a horrible tragedy. This was obviously, like I said a million times, very hard to research and get through, but also extremely interesting. And the hauntings itself, interesting too. It's just like, we don't know who actually killed these people and we don't know exactly what's haunting this house Mm -hmm. of course it's all a mystery it's all a mystery always every time (laughs) yeah this one just seems a little bit more mysterious it's because it's because it's a cold case yes that's true um but if you are interested in getting like super in-depth with the Velisca axe murders wanting to really hear why we think that the killer was definitely Paul Mueller. Um, I definitely recommend The Man on the Train by Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James. It is an amazing book. It's really good. And it goes through as to, like, also why Axe Murderer is not the Axe Murderer of New Orleans, which was interesting to learn about. So the differences in how they slayed people. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, we will see you May or I I always say we will see you and I guess that's just habit. You guys will hear from us May 18th. We can't wait. We hope you guys have an amazing month and we will talk to you guys later. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. This episode was produced 
Written and edited by Holly Daniel and Brittany Murray. Cover art by Ben May. We want to thank you for listening to this production of Sister Stitious.